Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning again. Great to see you. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. And, you know, it's interesting. As we grow as a church plant, we keep sort of adding on these little liturgical pieces. Um, And, you know, there used to be a day where we didn't do the gospel procession yet, and then we had enough uh, students to help out with that. And then now we're adding these torchbearers positions to the the procession. Um, And as I taught the students, it reminds us that, Jesus is Jesus. The light of the world is present with with us as we worship, and so we get to um, experience the illumination of the candles and be reminded of that each and every week. And I'm really grateful to our students for um, their flexibility in the ways that they help in the service. It's really great. I'm so grateful for you, and I'm grateful for all of you to be able to be worship uh, with you together this morning. Here in we've got three more weeks in this space before we move upstairs. And so I'm really grateful for that, too, because the AC works better up there, too. Uh, But as we get started this morning, we're going to be focusing in on the gospel passage that we heard this morning. And as we get started, let me pray for us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well... I love officiating weddings. I've done four so far, uh, and they are, well, except for one, they are all intense. One was during COVID, and so there was no expectations. Um, but they're all really intense, and, and I still love them. But I remember the first wedding that I was blessed to officiate um, as a new priest, figuring out basically how to serve the Eucharist for the first time, not you know, and then at being asked to celebrate a wedding. And as the time drew near for the wedding, we, we had our, you know, rehearsal the night before. Everything seemed like it was fine, except for the musician called out, so they had to get a junior high student to do it. But that sort of stuff happens. But we get to the wedding day, uh, and we are approaching the wedding hour, and the moment is it's about to begin. But there's a problem. There are no brides. There, there's no bride. There's no bridesmaids. <laughs> they are not there. Uh... And so the room was awkwardly hushed. I mean, people had stopped talking at this point because it got so close to the start time. And, and everyone was just anxiously waiting. Uh, and the poor groom is sweating profusely. Uh, and I have no idea what to do. I think I got up and cracked a joke and just said, keep talking. Everything's fine. But it was a really intense moment. Um, finally, the bride-to-be arrived late. Uh, but it's really not late because we start when the bride gets there, which is a pastoral lesson I learned that day. Um, and when I asked where they were, the bridesmaid told me that when they were starting to drive to the church, they realized they didn't have the rings. And this is in an old chapel, so they had to get ready off-site. They got, got into a van, started going, no rings. They had to go back, search everywhere to find the rings. And they finally did. And everything turned out fine. Uh, it was a great wedding. 
Of course, I didn't have any expectations because I didn't know how they were supposed to look. But it was a beautiful wedding. And the family is a, they're, they're a happy family and doing very well. But it was an intense beginning to that wedding. Um, weddings are always intense. And ancient weddings were no different. So when we look at ancient weddings, there's still a high anxiety type of event. There's family involved. Uh, you know, the, those who are closest to you are involved in the process. And so today's passage in the gospel introduces us to this wedding scene, a parable in Jesus' day that he's telling them about. And it's a wedding that doesn't go quite as planned. Jesus gives this parable from a wedding ceremony to illustrate a point about preparing for the day of the Lord. The, the New Testament, it, it comes to call the final day, um, the day of the Lord, it calls it the parousia, um, the day that Jesus comes and he returns to bring his kingdom in full. And it's a day of reckoning, it's a day of both judgment and a day of salvation. And this parable... This parable that Jesus tells is all about preparing for the return of the Lord. And so let's look at the parable together. If you've got your Bible or it's on your phone, it's Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 1 through 13. Jesus mentions that there are ten young women in this, in this parable uh, who take their lamps to go meet the bridegroom. There are many specifics that we don't know about weddings in Jesus' day. So we're pretty familiar with the general structure of a wedding in our current climate. But that's not to say that those rituals and ceremonies were the same back when Jesus is talking about weddings. But we, uh, we do know from other Middle Eastern cultures back in Jesus' day that there were traditions of having weddings late at night, which is generally not our custom. We usually have them sometime during the day. Uh, I've officiated some in the morning and in the afternoon, but never, uh, you know, in the middle of the night or when it is late after dinner. Um, and so, but there are some cultures that do this. Uh, and so what's happening here is some wedding ritual, there's some kind of torch lit procession where the young women are escorting the groom to the wedding banquet. And when you read the book of Proverbs, it's interesting. Wisdom and folly are portrayed as two different women. And so you can read uh, Proverbs, really it's six through eight and then nine, and you get these two women who are parables of wisdom and folly. And so in like manner, instead of one woman, Jesus has five women acting as parables for wisdom and folly and sort of bringing wisdom literature in into conversation with Jesus's theology of the kingdom. And these women are to, are all there to escort the groom to the wedding banquet. Five of them thought to bring extra oil uh, because back then, you know, torches are giant things on sticks that you have to dip in oil and then light them on fire. It's not well, it's close to that, but oil instead of candle wax. Um, five of them brought extra oil. Five did not. They're all waiting with their torches lit, waiting for the groom to come so that they can meet him and take him back to the wedding banquet. And we don't know why there was a holdup, but something didn't go right. It takes way too long. And, you know, it was an intense day. So you can imagine after an intense day, it's likely that your adrenaline is going to kick off and you will probably fall asleep. And this is what happens. All ten go to sleep because they're exhausted. Their bodies are just tired. The adrenaline's gone. They crash. 
And in the middle of the night, while they're asleep, sometime around midnight, who knows, a shout wakes them up. The groom is coming! Get up! This is what they hear. So, everyone's half asleep, scrambling in the middle of the night, exhausted. They're looking at their torches going, oh man, we got to get back into order, and, and we got to get these torches lit, get into position. But five women had not adequately prepared themselves for this moment. They ask some of the others who did bring extra for some oil. But the other women say, you know, if we were to share, then none of us would have enough for the journey from where we're going to where the, the, the bride, the groom's, uh, the wedding banquet's going to be held. And so five women are ill-prepared. Here in the parable, they're called foolish because um, of that wisdom and folly motif that's so common in the scriptures. They go off to buy oil from oil dealers. And unfortunately, while they are out buying oil, the groom comes. And he doesn't wait for the other five to come back. He takes who's there, and they escort him into the marriage feast. The other women come. They knock on the door, and they ask, Lord, Lord, can you let us in? And the groom says to them, I don't know you. And again, it's a small town. It is really unlikely that he's unaware of who they are. Right? He probably knows who they are. It would be weird if he invited random strangers into his wedding party. Um, but instead, it's a, it's a statement of dissociation. I, I'm dis- disassociating myself from you. So this parable is an extreme parable. It's to make a point that, um, that they are cut off because they haven't adequately prepared themselves to escort the groom to the marriage feast. They're not prepared for the marriage feast. They haven't done everything that's necessary to get there. Wisdom and folly then become a parable here. Uh, Wisdom and folly are equated to how someone prepares for the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus' point. How are we preparing for the kingdom of heaven? How do you prepare for the kingdom of heaven? And There's a lot of ways that you can go with that. But when I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about three key areas. The first is liturgy. The second is preparing to die, which sounds morbid. We'll get there. Uh, The third is daily living. Liturgy, death, daily living. Three areas where we are in preparation for the kingdom of God. So starting with the liturgy. um, I'm actually, after this, teaching the confirmation class on the Eucharist. So we'll touch on this a little bit. But there's an ancient prayer when I hold up the elements where I say, the gifts of God for the people of God. There's another ancient prayer that you can use there from the 600s where the priest says, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It makes explicit what's implicit in the liturgy that each time we come to the altar, we are coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are refiguring the realities of heaven in our worship. And so it's just beneath the surface in the liturgy that I love that prayer. It makes it very explicit. There's this figural connection that happens when we worship between the Passover lamb and Exodus. That's why Jesus is called the lamb of God. What God is doing in and for his people now and this connection to this victorious lamb in Revelation 19. Blessed is the lamb who was slain um, to receive honor, glory and power. Right. And. And so there's this connection of the the Paschal Lamb in the past, present, future. And so good preparation 
integrates the ways that we are praying in the liturgy and the ways that we are living in daily life. And so one of the decisions I made as we were thinking about youth ministry is I haven't been using an outside third-party curriculum. I've been using the Book of Common Prayer as our curriculum and just starting with, hey, here's, here's what we pray every week. Let's talk about it. Um, and that's been really good. I'm convinced that if we would spend more time with the Eucharist liturgy and what it has us praying each and every week, that we would better connect um, what we believe, how we pray, and then how we live that out as disciples of Jesus. Because each week we're reminded of the grace that we need to live out the victory um, that we have in Christ, living out union with Christ. So pay attention to things like the colors, which was different last week. Anybody remember what last week was? Yeah. And why was it white? All saints, right? So pay attention. Uh, it was white then. It was green. It's green now. In like three more weeks, it's going to be purple. And so what are these things doing? What are they communicating? Um, you know, figuring out what we are, uh, what the days are that we're in. So sometimes we pray, um, you know, to become like so-and-so in our calendar as saints. And, and why do we look at this or that person? What are the readings that we're doing each and every day? What are the readings that we have on Sundays? You know, figuring out what are the readings going to be next Sunday and then taking time to meditate on them through the week or even taking the readings that you heard today and meditating on them through the week. And so the work of the people, the liturgy, each week uh, is a preparation for the kingdom of heaven. When you look at your book of common prayer too, one of the things we talk about is the daily office, the daily prayer service. And that also is a liturgy of formation for daily living. Both of those things are preparation for the kingdom of God. They help us in preparation uh, for the divine marriage banquet. So we prepare in the liturgy, but we also prepare for the kingdom of God by remembering our death. Hope you're encouraged. Um, So the rule of St. Benedict has this great line, and it says, keep death daily before your eyes. Keep death daily before your eyes. Um, There's a great resource by an organization called Anglicans for Life, and and they've got this helpful little book on helping people with some of the more practical aspects on dying well, uh, from thinking through advanced directives to thinking through how you um, work through what you are going to leave to your progeny, uh, to thinking through how to help other people find your passwords when you pass on so that they can make sure to take care of your accounts uh, after you're gone. And so keeping death before our eyes sounds morbid um, because our culture is obsessed with avoiding um, death and avoiding suffering. Um, They try so hard, but the reality is that death comes to us all. And we would do well to keep it before our eyes because it reprioritizes things. And I I will admit, when I first read that verse and the rule of St. Benedict, I thought, well, I'm never going to be, well, I'm never going to be a monk because I'm married. But, you know, how morbid, um, you know, to, to keep that in front of my eyes all the time. It felt really jarring. But the thing is, the longer I live, the more and more friends I see on Facebook from my high school class pass away. Right. And I. And this is true every single year. And so I'm 38. And, you know, seeing a friend of mine pass away last week who's 38 is also really jarring. And it's and so there, there is wisdom to this uh, in the rule of St. Benedict. Um, so the longer I live, the more wisdom I see in it. It is 
It is centering to keep death before our eyes daily because it helps us reevaluate what matters most. Helps us reevaluate what matters most, what's most valuable to us. It also puts relationships into perspective. And so when you think of the most challenging relationships around you, how would keeping death before your eyes reframe that relationship? All of those things, and especially that line from St. Benedict, keeping that before our eyes are really helpful in framing how we are preparing to meet the Lord um, in, in the heavenly banquet. And so the liturgy helps us prepare. Keeping death before our eyes helps us prepare. And third, uh, daily living uh, is an opportunity to prepare for the kingdom of heaven. Daily living. So think about your day for a moment. I just want to read some descriptions of things that might be true of you, may not be true of you, but think about your day. You wake up, the alarm goes off, I would imagine. Uh, If you have a smartphone, perhaps in your tired fog, you sit there scrolling through um, a cycle of, now this is me, Facebook, news, email, wash, rinse, repeat, you know, uh, and then you get out of bed, you finally put your feet to the floor, you walk over, you get dressed, or you make coffee first, depending on uh, your ritual. You prepare yourself for the day somehow, and then if you have children, maybe nothing feels the same any day, and so the routine is completely different every day. Um, and your alarm is actually a crying child. Uh, at some point, you get your coffee and your breakfast down, you're dressed. Uh, maybe you work from home, maybe you head to work. If you are a stay at home parent, you consider what the day might hold for you and your kids that day. If you left the house to go to work, you do various tasks, you have meetings, you grab some lunch, you pound down some more coffee in the afternoon, which the Germans have a word for it. It's called Nachmittag's Cafe, and I love that. We need a word for the afternoon coffee. You press through the afternoon, you're exhausted, back in a fog, and then you make your way home. Maybe you sat in traffic on the way there and on the way back. Maybe you took a train, and then you have to make dinner when you get home. And if you're a stay-at-home parent, you know, how does the afternoon go? Is a child fussy after an afternoon nap if they still take naps did you get that cup of coffee during their nap maybe it was a sweet day with the kids maybe it was difficult and then you also have to do dinner prep maybe you guys if you have multiple people in your household maybe you eat alone maybe you eat with other people depending on how the day went people's schedules maybe it's sort of staggered dinners after dinner you're tired you throw all the dirty dishes in the sink and you have this internal battle about whether or not you have the energy to do those dishes or just leave them until the morning. And if you have kids, you start that routine for bedtime, which may go well, probably doesn't. And uh, that's a challenge, if not an outright battle. And then you remember after everyone's in bed, you still have work to do. So you stay up late trying to get work done, unwind a little bit, maybe watch a show to try and clear your head. You fall asleep. You wake up and you do it all again. All of you have different rhythms. I know I didn't capture everybody, but just think about your day. What is the everyday stuff that comprises your day? Then ask the question, what part of all that does God care about? What part of all that does God care about? Interestingly, I think the answer is all of it. I think it all matters. Um, And in Advent, we began our service with 
uh, blessed be God, Father, and Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Advent, anybody know what we begin the service with? Surely the Lord is coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We're reminded in Advent of the impending coming of the Lord. Um, and if the Lord is coming soon, which is that word parousia, then the daily stuff in front of us is imbued with kingdom potential. The Lord is coming soon. Then your everyday stuff has the has, is imbued with with kingdom potential. There are parts of our days that just have to get done when you think about all that. As an example, in my own life, when I think about Wednesdays, that's usually the day I save for sermon prep. But right now, we have formation group and uh, on Wednesdays, and I often get to cook for it. And so, you know, as I'm cutting stuff up, throwing it in the crock pot, uh, one of the things that I've started doing in this time is, as I'm throwing stuff in the crock pot, taking time to pray for my formation group by name and the different needs that they have, uh, even as I'm cooking for them and taking seriously the command to feed the flock. Um, and so the thing is, with some attentiveness, there, there are potentially prayerful ways to run payroll, to help your clients, to write legal documents, to design spaces, to serve in the military, to raise your children, all the things that you do during the way for attentive then there are prayerful ways to do all things that prepare us to meet the Lord. All things can become a, a space of preparation. So now, there are set-aside times of prayer. I mentioned the daily office. Some people have called the daily office a sanctuary in time, and I love that because there's all these psalms about, I was overwhelmed, and to gain perspective, I ran to the sanctuary of God. Run to the sanctuary. Do the daily office. Create that sanctuary in time. But the thing is, most of our lives are not lived in the sanctuary. And so we need something that sustains us beyond just running to the sanctuary. And so as you go through the day, here's just a couple of questions I wrote down that might help. Is there something to give thanks for in this? Whatever I'm doing, is there something here to give thanks for? Is there someone or something to pray for? How do I see the image of God in somebody else? Is there something that I wish were different right now? We should probably add another one, which is, is there anything I need to repent of right now as well? Because the reality is, as we go through the day, there are things that we need to give thanks for. There are ways that we need to look for God's action. Uh, There are ways that we need to search in spaces and people to find the character of Christ. And there are things to grieve and lament. Uh, And those are all prayer. And so our vocations, all of life, matter to God when it comes to preparing to meet the Lord in the divine banquet. And not only do they matter, um, they have each of the parts of our lives have within them something. I'm going to use a big word here. C.S. Lewis is not mine. But he calls it coruscations of divinity. Coruscations of divinity. It's like when there's the sun, you know the sun is present because you feel the rays of the sun. Uh, you feel its heat. You see its light. And, and so the, um, the glimpses of the things that the sun does remind us the sun exists. And so around us are all these coruscations of divinity, like things that remind us that the sun is there and doing it what it should. Um, 
Just like as we know the sun is present in light and heat, we know the kingdom of God is present among us if we have an attentive prayerfulness to the everyday stuff around us. Put the word coruscations on your mirror in the morning. So being attentive to those coruscations of the kingdom is another way to prepare for the coming of the Lord. So we've looked at Jesus' parable about this wedding feast, about five wise women, about five foolish women. It's a parable about being prepared to meet the Lord, being prepared for the kingdom of God. And so we're preparing for the parousia, for the coming day when Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring us into his heavenly banquet, which we taste of in the Eucharist each and every week. So we prepare for the kingdom in our liturgy. We prepare for the kingdom by keeping death before our eyes. We prepare in prayerful attentiveness to the everyday moments that we live through in the presence of God. And as we do that, may God grant us grace to be counted among the wise who have lived this life of preparation to meet the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, you who with your own mouth have told us that at midnight the bridegroom shall come, grant that the cry, the bridegroom comes, may sound evermore in our ears, that so we, so we be never unprepared to meet him, or forgetful of the souls for whom he died for whom we watch and pray. And save us, O oh Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm.